Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Another deviation from orthodoxy this week. Three guests, but in the standard two segments. We'll hear from the historian Donna Murch, who will correct some misinformation that's been circulating recently about the Black Panther Party. And then sociologist Sadia Tour and journalist Rabia Mahmood will explain what's been going on in Pakistan with a quasi-coup and a shady election. On this last day of Black History Month, I thought it was important to correct some criticisms of the Black Panthers I've seen floating around, in this month of all months. To do that, there's no better voice than Black historian Donna Murch. Her most recent book, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, was published by Haymarket Books in March 2022. In October 2010, the UNC Press published Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. She's now completing a new book called Capitalism Plus Dope, Policing the Crisis and the War on Drugs in Los Angeles. Donna is an associate professor of history at Rutgers. Donna Murch. I keep seeing that the Black Panthers are not relevant for today. Any truth to that, or is actually a lot we can learn from them? From my point of view, I've revisited the Panthers in different times in my life. Starting when I was an undergraduate in the 1980s, I read... Asada, and that was my first introduction to the party. And I was so excited about it because it represented a kind of politics that was an alternative that I didn't know about before that. It was at a time when the civil rights movement had been enshrined and even the Republican Party was quoting Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And just reading Asada opened up this whole new world. So what I would say is that The Panthers have been relevant to me and to the country in many different times. There's a lot of anger at the Panthers. I think that one of the reasons for that is a vision of using them to embody identity politics and ethno-nationalism, which to me is so incredibly strange because the Panthers were kind of the premier Black left formation that actively cultivated relations with people they called mother country radicals who were fighting imperialism in the Vietnam War. And although they were an all-Black organization, their real belief was aligning with the Chinese American Red Guard Party, Iwar Kun, the Brown Berets, the mother country radicals who were the left anti-imperialists with a radical interpretation that identified with the Viet Minh and Ho Chi Minh. And then the Young Patriot Party that was the leadership of white working class, rural people from Appalachia. So it's incredibly strange to me how the Panthers have become a, the embodiment of an, a much hated identity politics. There's this um, associated critique, though, that uh, all Black people need is class politics, and Black people don't have any problems of their own they need to organize around. I think so. But what I would say is, you know, what drew me to the Panthers was, one, that they represented this alternate view of radical Black politics that mixed Marxism with Black formation, political formation. But when I revisited them in my mid-20s, what I was really struck by was that They had an account for thinking about the 20th century that was different than a traditional left analysis. They were very focused on the unemployed and the people that were shut out of the formal economy that they called the lumpen proletariat. You know, I spent a good portion of my youth trying to figure out why this was and where it came from, and a lot of it has to do with their origins in Oakland and Northern California which was a black community that was formed of people migrating out of the south in the 1940s in order to get jobs in the bay area shipbuilding industry because the gulf coast shipyards were segregated so you have people that migrate to get these great government jobs and then in 1945 the transport carriers shut down and so you have vast increase in access and education and in wages and then people lose their jobs. So in many ways the story of the Bay Area shipbuilding industry was anticipating what was coming through automation and outsourcing. So one of the things I found exciting about the party is that they were able to use a Marxist working class analysis but to foreground the fate of the unemployed and underemployed. 
The other piece is that when I was researching Huey Newton's papers, I came across these notes and papers from Emmanuel Wallerstein. So they were also interested in world systems theory and trying to think about imperialism and capitalism at scale, not simply domestic fights defined by social democracy. So this class first vision that's defined by nation, first of all, I think it's an unfortunate form of politics, but in terms of the Panther Party, and we need more of this, we're seeing it with the Palestine protests today. They were at their core internationalists who wanted to situate the United States within a world system and also understood that there were deep fault lines within the working class. And much of Black people's economic dilemma is that although clearly in some ways we're the most working class of all the different populations in the U.S., you know, you think of convict labor that built the New South, that because of race, people were pushed into the most vulnerable segment of the working class and subjected to economic restructuring, later being defined as the underclass. But these are the people that were the victims of economic restructuring. I think the party had a really sophisticated understanding about how to place Black people within the United States, but also within a larger world system. The Vietnam War, obviously, is a very important backdrop for um, their political organizing. And, uh, you know, the current war in Gaza has an awful lot of echoes there. It seems like some parallels in the politics of the two times. I think so, absolutely. That's the lens through what I see happening. And sadly, you know, I'm on the National Council of the AAUP-AFT. So the faculty grad national union has an affiliation agreement with the American Federation of Teachers. And we've had a lot of debates about a ceasefire petition. And one of the arguments that I've used is that there are multiple reasons this is tragic. Most importantly, the genocide that two and a half million Palestinians are facing and a use of technology that I've never seen before in war. You know, they're using algorithms that are targeting women and children. It's a scale of destruction and murder that's unlike the scale of anything I've seen. And of course, we're seeing it in real time in social media. So we're having an experience. And I think that that's the, one of the biggest parallels between the late 60s and now is that huge portions of the population in the U.S. is watching these horrendous images of children losing limbs all the time. And that's what's driving the protests but the piece that I've had to argue um, in our union is that Joe Biden's presidency is clearly has had mixed results. Uh, I could say a lot of critical things, but you know the thing that I valued was the passage of the infrastructure bill, problematic though it is, and the way it gives in in privatization. But that was important. Pulling out of Afghanistan was also important. But not unlike LBJ, who becomes remembered for the Tet Offensive and for his lies about the Vietnam War, his accomplishments like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are completely overshadowed by his lies and Cold War liberalism that Daniel Ellsberg, the lies of which he exposed. And I feel like Biden's in this position as well. Any of the accomplishments of his presidency are overshadowed in his support for mass murder and genocide. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Let's talk a bit about the Panthers programs. They're most famous, of course, for the breakfast program and the schools. What was the strategy behind them? What, what were they hoping to accomplish by sponsoring those things? So the Panther Party is formed in um, October 1966. And the thing that they were best known for were their police patrols, where they wedded a vision of enforcing a change in the police to the kinds of protests and organizing that you saw after the Watts Rebellion in Los Angeles. But they wed that also to a legal vision in which they stopped police as they were carrying loaded unconcealed weapons and then read to people that the police were harassing their rights based on California statutes. After doing this, within about eight months, there was a change of law that made this behavior illegal. Prior to that, it had been legal. And you saw this enormous assault on the founders of the party and the male leadership. 
So roughly within a year of being found in October 66, by the time you get to October 1967, all the leadership is in jail. Huey Newton's facing a capital murder charge. Bobby Seale is also incarcerated and ends up going on trial for conspiracy. And it's in this moment of crisis that a lot of the Panther programs are born. They called it survival pending revolution. And it played this essential role in figuring out how to reconnect the Panthers close to the Black community at a time of enormous repression. One important thing about the party is that these were largely teenagers and people in their early 20s. They're formed on a college campus, community college campus, just on the edge of it. And so they, in some ways, were experimenting with different types of activism and the way that the breakfast programs came about is that it's in late 67, 68, that they form freedom schools. Different local chapters have their freedom schools. And many of the children who were brought to the schools had not had breakfast and it was affecting their learning. And so it was out of this recognition that despite a social welfare state, many Black people were not being served by it. So they formed breakfast programs in schools. An important point about this is that it wasn't just volunteerism like you would see from a church or a fraternity or sorority. They were trying to shame the American welfare state to say, we're teenagers and people in our early 20s and we're able to feed families. Why can't you, federal government? Why can't you feed people without them having to go through means testing for example, the man in the house rule. So it was a turn to different kinds of social welfare supports for Black communities. And I think that it was as important for their survival of the party in a time of repression as it was for shaming the state. I think it's important to underscore the fact that these were like, what, 18 and 22-year-olds, that they were just inventing this as they were going along. I mean, that's really impressive. Uh, And I think that that fact uh, is forgotten in, in the midst of history. I think it's extremely important. It is. It's a youth movement. There's so much anger at the Panthers about their mistakes and the things that they didn't do and being accused of creating a kind of form of politics that was anti-Marxist or anti-class. But I think that's deeply unfair. They did an enormous amount of, as young people, also the children of working class parents, kind of pulling from different different traditions. I mean, the 10-point program is partially a rejoinder to the Declaration of Independence. It invokes this language of rights, while at the same time mixing it with a socialist vision, the right to full employment, the right to shelter, the right to not serve in the military or in the police. They were incredibly innovative and they were a small organization. You know, maybe it's a testament to the power of the Panthers that so many people (laughs) attack them and hold them responsible for any number of things. (laughs) <laughs> you can say any, any number of things about them, but they're not forgotten. They are not forgotten, despite people saying that they should be. <laughs> yeah, to cast that longest shadow over 50-some uh, years, that's really, I don't know, it's pretty remarkable to me. This is why I was starting kind of how I've come to the Panthers at different periods in my life. And I've come to them once again because I'm writing a book called Capitalism Plus Dope Equals Genocide. And a lesser known aspect of the party was that they were part of a radical anti-drug movement that had an analysis about drugs in the community and the war on drugs as being mutually reinforcing. And they were really talking about the 1970s in New York. The author of this pamphlet is Michael Tabor. And he's both a year before the Knapp Commission proceedings on the NYPD. He's talking about how the regime of prohibition strengthened what they called illegal capitalist drug economies. So I'm working on a book that's about the war on drugs and the crack crisis in Los Angeles. And once again, the Panthers had something really generative and provocative. They also developed a whole alternative realm of drug treatment that centered on acupuncture and fighting for social transformation versus the widespread use of methadone So I never cease to be amazed by their production of the Black Panther newspaper, dozens and dozens of autobiographies, and just the kind of intellectual archive of the Panthers. I've turned to them in multiple times throughout my life with different research questions, and I find that there's quite a bit there to learn from. 
I'm speaking with the historian Donna Merch. So let's review some of the critiques that I've read recently. One, you know, that, that it was kind of aesthetic poses of militancy uh, that uh, you know were striking at the time, but empty ultimately. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Panthers when I was a graduate student, and I was struck by how different they are than traditional elites. This is long before the thesis that I became known for was formed, which is that the Black Panther Party is the product of Southern migration to California and a vastly increased access to both high school and higher education, and that a study group was formative to creating them. And so, you know, when I was researching this, this was the kind of dominant discourse about the Panthers, that they were just a form of political theater with nothing really behind them. And my response to that is that this was a working class organization of recent migrants from the South. And one of the things that set Oakland apart is that it did not have a strong traditional black middle class like Chicago or New York City or even Los Angeles. So you have this very recent black working class population from the South, many people coming from the rural South, which has a lot to do with the gun culture of the party. One of the questions I think that should go along with this is why there were so many artists in the party. So Huey Newton was a poet, Elaine Brown was a singer, and Bobby Seale was actually a stand-up comedian. And I remember just thinking about that. And I think that the party was put together in a way that didn't come from the networks of traditional elites and that they were very mobilization oriented. And I don't think that that is something ugly. I think that is something important. So the question is like, if you're a recent migrant from the South with a little bit of community college education, how do you form an organization that's going to become so well known? And they were very sensitive to the use of media they used a strategy that Malcolm X also pioneered, which was using negative publicity in order to get out the word about your organization. So in 1967, after the California legislature makes it illegal to carry loaded unconcealed weapons, thereby uh, striking directly at their police patrols, they did this while Ronald Reagan was standing outside. You can imagine like black men with four, was like, I think 19 people, 15 men and four women, march into the California legislature carrying loaded unconcealed weapons. Oh my God. This is how the Panthers became famous. They had very limited resources. And I think that they used media and shock as a way to get coverage. And it worked. You know, this happens with Ronald Reagan as governor and it's reported all over the United States and all over the world. And people saw this and young people in the US started forming their own local chapters. So they wed armed self-defense to this radical vision, but they used corporate media as a way to disseminate their ideas. And they touched on this before, but let's uh, expand on it, um, that it was just a purely race-based formation that just could not organize in the larger population. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is really frustrating. Um, I think that it has to do with just honestly not studying the history of the party, but rather just using kind of a set of theoretical principles and applying it to them. The party was an all-Black organization. There was a Japanese member and also some Armenian members of the party. But at its core, the Panthers were explicit in claiming their lineage to Marxism also, I talked about their uh, real embrace of world systems theory because so much of their focus was on imperialism. They didn't use the nation state as the core formation. Instead, they looked to world systems of power and imperialism as foundational. And, you know, very importantly, they had direct relationships with Mao in China, with Castro in Cuba, uh, in one of their more unpleasant histories also with North Korea, but they were an explicit Marxist party. And if you read the writings of the FBI and all of the counterintelligence and counter-subversive records on the Panthers, they saw them as a Marxist organization that was a very dangerous one. 
So I don't know how you really impose this view of the party. I mean, you can disagree with their form of organization, but I think it would be deeply inaccurate to say that the Panthers weren't Marxists and that they weren't leftists. Certainly J. Edgar Hoover thought they were threatening. And explicitly, I mean, when you look at the different documents, I mean, the thing that they're most concerned of, they're looking at it through a counter-subversive lens, is that they see this as communism come home. And with the narrow and limited vision of law enforcement, they sometimes reference the Soviet Union, but you know, the Panthers were part of a third world Marxist tradition. But I think to say that they weren't leftists, I just would like to see the evidence for that. Some of the popular writings about this that I've seen, they're just very sloppy. You know, they take any black power organization and they treat the Panthers as the equivalent. And one of the problems with doing this is that, and I talk to people a lot when I'm giving popular talks about this, that there wasn't a single level of repression directed at different black organizations. It was the Panthers who were explicitly Marxist, who were overwhelmingly the focus of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. You had an organization like the US organization that comes out of Los Angeles originally, who are the founders of Kwanzaa, and they suffered almost no repression from the police and from federal law enforcement. <laughs> that does arouse suspicions about their loyalties. <laughs> <laughs> so that part is really important. I think that when you study the party, they are the victims of anti-communism combined with anti-blackness in ways that other organizations do not suffer. As I recall my Coentel Pro papers, um, Hoover really hated it when uh, there was cross-racial organizing too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's, that's what I think is funny about this kind of misrecognition of the Panthers. The thing that they most feared was the emergence, I use J. Edgar Hoover's term here, of a so-called Black Messiah who was able to create a multiracial coalition. The direct murder of Fred Hampton, I think, is the ultimate embodiment of this fear because Hampton in a city like Chicago was able to bring together all these different constituencies that I talked about, the Young Patriots Party, you know, poor working class rural whites with the college uh, anti-war movement, the Brown Berets, you have a Puerto Rican presence in Chicago. So precisely the thing that made them in the crosshairs of the FBI, as you said, was their ability to create these multiracial coalitions who shared a fight against imperialism in the Vietnam War. Okay, and then to conclude this, um, what can we learn from them today? What uh, lessons would be applicable to our current politics? Well, I can't help but think of the Panthers right now because of what's going on in Gaza. You know, I'm devastated by it. I've been just utterly angered, but also in some ways destabilized by multiple wars the U.S. has been involved in. You know, I was too young to fully recognize what was happening in the late 60s, but my parents cared about it a great deal. But the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq war of 2003, and then these multiple massacres of civilian populations in Palestine. And I think that we need to return to an internationalist vision in which we focus not only on domestic social democracy, which is important, but is also linked to a larger vision of solidarity with the vulnerable populations of the world, and especially the global South. It has never been so clear to me in my life, both the legacy and the continued politics of imperialism, where you have the US and Western Europe siding with Israel and much of the rest of the world siding with the Palestinians. I think the Panthers provided a medium to talk about that. Their newspaper has lots of material also on, on Palestine itself. And I think they provide us a model of the kinds of radical international politics of the late 1960s that we need today to fight for free Palestine. That was Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers and author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, published in 2010 by the University of North Carolina Press. Her book, Asada Taught Me, was published by Haymarket a couple of years ago. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News, back after a musical break. <laughs> Ooh.
That was some of Free Bobby Now by the Lumpen, which was the house band of the Black Panther Party. They recorded this song in San Jose in 1970, shortly after party co-founder Bobby Seale was arrested in New Haven. Next, what's going on in Pakistan? On February 8th, the country held parliamentary elections in the wake of political unrest, compounded by economic crisis, sparked by the removal of Imran Khan, politically a right-wing populist, as prime minister following a vote of no confidence in April 2022. Khan, a former cricket star and founder of a party known by its Urdu initials PTI, blamed pressure from the U.S. for his removal. He cited a diplomatic cable, known in the trade as a cipher, a Pakistani government account of a meeting with two U.S. diplomats, recounting Washington's displeasure with a trip Khan took to Russia just as it launched the invasion of Ukraine. As we'll hear, the story is more complicated than that. Soon after his removal from office, Khan was arrested on corruption charges and released three days later. He was arrested again on different corruption charges and convicted, only to be released on appeal. He was arrested for a third time for leaking state secrets over the cipher and sentenced to 10 years in prison. This one is sticking, at least for now. To explain all this, we're joined by Sadia Tour, Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York, and Rabia Mahmood, a journalist and human rights researcher based in Pakistan. Saudi's work focuses on issues of culture, nationalism, gender, sexuality, state formation, and international political economy. Her book, The State of Islam, was published by Pluto in 2011. Rabia's work focuses on state repression, impunity, and persecution of religious minorities. The first voice you'll hear after mine is Rabia's. So let's, I guess, start with the vote of no confidence in Imran Khan. Um, who is he and why the vote of no confidence? Imran Khan is the former prime minister of Pakistan, at the moment imprisoned. And he is also a former cricketer. He used to be the captain of Pakistan cricket team. And a bit of a heartthrob because he had like a big celebrity following across the world, but specifically in South Asia and a philanthropist. And he was elected in courts, the Pakistan, Pakistan's prime minister in July 2018, but in April 2022, he was ousted from power through a constitutional vote of no confidence, which was brought about by the Pakistan Democratic Movement, a parliamentary coalition of multiple parties. He was brought into power with immense support by the Pakistani military establishment. And when that support was taken away, was uh, ousted through a parliamentary coalition and uh, a constitutional move, basically. Now, what is politics generally, and why did he uh, fall afoul of the military? He's known, he's super popular. He's gotten more popular. He's sort of, uh, is popular and a populist leader as well. Mostly his uh, political affiliation and the way he was in, in power, they we could say that there was a right-wing bent to his policies and uh, what he did do. And we also, during his uh, administration, the Khan administration, we saw extreme repression and uh, a climate of uh, oppression, uh, repression which was so extreme that there was censorship of press and there was targeting of human rights activists, political activists and whatnot. And when he came into power, he also came into power the way others have come into power through the military's support. They put together a coalition for him, basically. He had not won in 2018 or that or we could say that it was it's a contested view. And when he did come into power, he also came into power through the support of the right wing. And also there was a campaign he did, which was, you know, in which he pandered to the religious right as well. And before that, there was a lot of political upheaval, which had started in 2016 and 17 in the country. Unfortunately, he happens to be one of all those prime ministers and civilian leaders who have never completed their term in the parliament, even if that parliament finishes its term 
the prime minister has never, we have never had a prime minister which has finished their five-year term. So that's pretty much what happened. And uh, Khan's administration was also severely criticized by its oppositions for failures in governance, soaring inflation, and for plunging country into a diplomatic crisis. And then, of course, when the vote of no confidence did take place, he tried to block the vote. He dissolved the lower house of the parliament. And later on, his party was in power in two provinces. And those two provinces, their assemblies were also dissolved. But at that time, the Supreme Court declared his dissolution of the assembly unconstitutional. At that time, then we got, through a parliamentary vote, another chief minister. You can already see that, you know, in order to understand even what happened with Imran Khan last year, you have to understand how he was brought into power in 2018. And in order to understand that, you have to understand the crisis of 2016. And so we have to kind of like put all of this in sort of a longer historical perspective eventually. I saw him framed as a populist in some way. Yes, he is very much. What does that mean exactly? He is actually a right-wing populist in the sense that he, and and he does have a lot of popularity for the reasons that Rabia was laying out. Just so that you can understand his party, he has always been this kind of charismatic celebrity figure in Pakistan, right? And very much within this sort of nationalist mode of like being the Pakistan cricket team captain, the, the cricket team that won the World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. And so that has always given him a lot of social and cultural and then political capital, but never enough to actually be a major party on the national scene. Like the understanding always was that like the two main national parties that mattered at the national level were the Pakistan People's Party and the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz. Now, the role that PTI, Imran Khan's party, always played, even in earlier civilian administrations, was that of spoiler. This is a skill that they have honed very well. So it's it's being a spoiler, not just in terms of mastering the art of trolling your opponent's on the internet, but also of like literally just bringing everyday life to a halt by like bringing people out on the street and like every time they they disagree with something that has happened, even if it has happened in completely constitutional ways, this has been the role that they played and the military has used them very strategically to undermine civilian governments in the past. Now, it's an important point to make that the military really is the ultimate power in Pakistan, right? Yes, the politicians play on the ground that the military lays out, essentially. But that's not to say that it's some it's some sort of pre-given ground, because that ground has been not necessarily the political parties uh, themselves, but popular movements in Pakistan have pushed and pushed and pushed to open more and more space for civilian, like democratic, small D and, and big D politics. And that is something that, as you can imagine, never sits well with the military. The military is a deeply anti-people force. And what happens is that you have these cycles, if you look at the pattern in Pakistani history, is that you have these cycles where you have military rule, you have a very huge, intense anti-military um, democratic movement that ousts that military rule. The military has to retreat briefly. It regroups. It tries to figure out how it can, in some way, still assert its power uh, within the civilian democratic space. Sometimes it is more successful, sometimes less successful. But the the really important, um, I think, time period that we hopefully can touch on is the period that happened after the last major military rule, which was that of Musharraf. The thing to keep in mind is that the popular sentiment against the military has been growing over the decades. And that's the wave also that Imran Khan is currently riding, because unfortunately, he has become the face of the anti-military movement in Pakistan, not for all Pakistanis by any means, because many Pakistanis um, think of the PTI as a deeply regressive, reactionary and right wing force, as Rabia was saying, and when they were in power, they were incredibly repressive when it came to people's movements and very, very supportive of the military, going so far as to say that they were willing to criminalize any criticism of the military. That's just a little bit of background to keep in mind. Sadia has explained it quite well. But when Khan came into power, the then military chief supported him and the then ISI chief supported him as well. But when he came into power, he gave an extension 
to the then military chief, which is basically what happens when you the both when both prime minister and the military chief are getting along. The chief of the army staff should have finished his uh, tenure and another one should have come. But Khan, because he was getting along with him, gave him an extension. And that's something which had happened in the past as well. Prime ministers give extensions to the chief of army staffs and there's no guarantee that that alliance would continue or not. As we saw in Khan's case as well, their alliance fell through. That's what was happening. And Khan, of course, his administration was termed as a hybrid regime. And the administrations which have come after him are also called as hybrid regime 2.0. He gets kicked out and there's an election, a flawed election that was obviously fraudulent. So what's happened since? Who has taken power? Who's running the country? There are allegations of immense rigging in this election. There were also allegations of immense rigging in the 2018 elections. It was also terribly managed and very fraudulent. And this is happening again. You know, some would agree and some would say that the degree of rigging is on a larger scale. Uh, But that has to be investigated. Now we see another coalition which is being put together. This time around, the people who are the face of this coalition are the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, the party and the leader of which were not getting along with the previous army staff. And that's why Nawaz Sharif, who's been a prime minister three times in the country, he was disqualified for life in 2017 on corruption allegations But now he's back and his party looks like is going to be in power through a coalition. His younger brother, Shabazz Sharif, who was also the leader of the Democratic Alliance, which carried out the vote of no confidence, is going to be the prime minister. Of course, then there are the provincial governments, different parties in different provinces, including Khan's PTI, which is is going to be uh, running Khyber Pakhtunkhwa the northwestern province, and PMLN is going to be ruling Punjab and the Pakistan People's Party in Sindh, and then Balochistan is going to be PPP and others. It sounds like for what you're saying that no real force in Pakistan has achieved any kind of hegemony in the civilian sphere. The military is the big ruling force, but it sounds like there's really no hegemonic political force. Is that wrong? Or is- There is no political force which is strong enough at the moment. There is no single largest party. Pakistan Tehreek Insaf PTI, which is Khan's party, does claim that they won X number of seats, the majority of seats. But those claims, while based on the voter sort of reaction, anecdotes, it does look to be something which should be looked into. They're very good at exaggerating and propaganda. It looks like an exaggerated claim, but this has to be investigated by the Election Commission and the Supreme Court. But we do not have a single largest party in the country at the moment. That was the voice of the journalist Rabia Mehmood. I'm speaking with her and the sociologist Sadia Tour. What's been the effect of the diplomatic cable reporting an alleged U.S. pressure to fire Imran Khan that The Intercept published in August? Doug, the cipher was a much-touted cable, right? That purported to be this gotcha moment showing that the army was dancing to the U.S.'s tune. There may well have been an actual cable, but the cable itself, you, I'm sure you read it, right, Doug? Yeah. The cable itself says nothing. It's a diplomatic cable that expresses what diplomatic cables do to their ambassadors, that the U.S. is not particularly happy with X or Y, that the prime minister or the, the government or the so-and-so has said. And that was immediately interpreted and linked to Khan's ouster. Because he took a trip to Russia, right? At the- yeah, exactly. Well, that's an incredibly simplistic understanding of how Pakistani politics works and of the Pakistani military, right? So, of course, the Pakistani military has gotten as big as it has and has managed to have the power that it has in Pakistan, despite the deep anti-military sentiment in the country. So deep that essentially in 1971, the Pakistani military was willing to let go of East Pakistan, in order to maintain its power. That's just to say that the Pakistani military is a force that is autonomous. It acts in its own interests. Sometimes that in- it sees its interests as allied with the US's. It's very happy to jump on that bandwagon. It's been very happy to have had the imperialist wars in Afghanistan that it could jump on because it grew incredibly bloated. It got a lot of money 
Now, it seems very skilled at playing the U.S. I yeah, mean, exactly. And if you look at like American, like mainstream or even sort of left-leaning democracy now type of discourse about Pakistan, especially during the, the height of the war of terror, it was all about how Pakistan is just unreliable. It's just unreliable as an ally. If the Pakistani military was uh, establishment was so much under the power of the State Department, you would not be here, have ever heard those things. But it's because the Pakistani military acts in its own interest. It plays the U.S. as and when it can. To sort of uh, say or think that the Pakistani military would undermine the PTI government or Imran Khan because the State Department wrote to you know its ambassador and like wagged its finger is ridiculous. In order to understand what happened last year and what has been happening for all of uh, the last several decades at least, you really have to understand the internal politics of Pakistan and the Pakistani military's like outsized role in in that game that it plays. The ISI, the intelligence agency, is that allied with the military? Do they act as one or do they have separate interests? To us, basically, it appears that their interests are the same, gen- generally, because they are the, as we call them, the deep state, the military establishment, the security establishment. And uh, so far, we've seen that they, they might be on a minute level when you look at the nitty gritty of a certain incident, like, the, you know, that the chief of the ISI, uh, uh, you know, director general of the ISI or the chief of army staff, they might have two views on something. They might have different alliances within, within the political um, forces. But by the end of the day, the military and the ISI itself, they are very much like a, the military is a very uniform institution and it is like literally and uh, also thinks of its own interests before anything else for all intents and purposes the um, ISI or the intelligence agencies they do although on paper they are answerable to the civilian leader which is the prime minister and the relevant ministries but they are also the only uh, one they answer to is the chief of army staff so that's that's this is how it is and i want to like jump in on a bit on the cipher case right that without getting into the detail of it uh, of the case it was something which was a big narrative win for the pti and if you are in pakistan and you look at how the situation is it's obvious that khan's relationship going sour with the military establishment and the powers that be which brought him into power was at the core of you know the vote of no confidence against him right because before him we had a prime minister who was disqualified before him we had another prime minister who was uh, disqualified and we had a new prime minister from the pakistan people's party you know the party which was ruling 2008 onwards. So what was the conspiracy for the ouster or the disqualifications of those prime ministers? When we look at the trends, this is how we see it. And the Cypher um, saga was a bizarre one, right? Because they are, I mean, this is not an endorsement of the uh, wiretapping, which was done by the intelligence for all intents and purposes, you can say the intelligence does it, right? Is the leaking of the audios between Khan and his other and his political party members in which he did say that we have to play it up. We want to play it up because we want to uh, use it as a narrative thing um, to basically spread this narrative that I was ousted because of some sort of like a threat from the US. And this is not to cut any slack to the United States and its interests in Pakistan and a very bleak history of that you know, relationship Pakistan has had with the US. It's not an endorsement of that at all. But he did say that himself. And uh, I mean, there's a lot more detail to how this has gone on. But when we see how in certain sections it's painted as some sort of like a regime toppling by the US in Pakistan, it looks quite bizarre. Yeah, it's very absurd because that we, th- those of us who understand Pakistan and Pakistani politics, like know that, that that's really not how things work. What um, has the effect of U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan been on the military standing and cash flow? Now, there has been an impact uh, on the cash flow when you don't have a war next door, which the military was very much involved in. 
and the withdrawal of aid, quote unquote. But I, uh, I would say that how the situation has been in, in Afghanistan uh, and it's a tricky question, you know, because we were critical and not for the occupation by the US or bombing of the country or the war for 20 years and not for the Taliban. And while one wanted peace in Afghanistan, now you have the Taliban and so much the humongous humanitarian crisis in the country and a repression and the gender apartheid. And none of that is good for us either because uh, of our relationship with the country, because we are right next door, because of the security tension, the tensions over militancy, the relationship being bizarre between the two countries. I mean, of course, we have been in the state of this unrest ourselves. Like we had this political crisis, then we had a, a ruling coalition after vote of no confidence, then we had the caretaker government, which has been terrible when it comes to Afghan refugees in the country. I mean, they just deported in October, November, they deported like I think 1.7 million Afghan refugees, many of whom had like, you know, residential permits. Not all of them. That was the attempt. Large number, yes. That was the number that they were trying to deport. But I think, you know, Doug, that's that's also such a complicated question because the Pakistani military, um, the, the war in Afghanistan was very, very important and convenient for the Pakistani military because it because of the cash flow, but because it could play its games, uh, the games in Afghanistan, the games domestically. It used the whole militancy discourse, the security discourse to set up an extremely repressive infrastructure in Pakistan domestically. The discourse of militancy and, and security allowed it to target populations and groups in Pakistan as terrorists, as Taliban supporters, simply for dissenting, simply for demanding their democratic rights. And the Pakistan, um, the Pakhtun Tahafuz movement, which was an immense people's movement that arose against both the Taliban and against the military, was severely repressed by the military and by under Khan's regime, right? So not just the fallout of the American withdrawal, but just the American presence from the 1970s onwards and American interest from the 1970s onwards in Afghanistan have really produced or enabled the Pakistani military establishment to really strengthen itself domestically as well. But also strengthening itself domestically has always meant actually creating a lot of repression and insecurity domestically. So we have to sort of put what's happening today also within that backdrop. Repression of the past years continues to this day of those groups. So it's not that it has stopped with Imran Khan not being in power. The repression of like the Pashtun groups, the Baloch, other ethnic groups, other uh, rights groups and, uh, you know, political dissident groups continues to this day. Absolutely. And PTI has been very successful in acting as if and putting out its messaging as if it is the only and the major target of uh, the of this kind of a repression and anti-democratic uh, repression whereas like when it was in power it was actually the force that put forward the military's own repressive agenda in order to understand how it's able to constantly put this messaging forward in a way that it reaches the west we have to understand that while it has cross-sectional appeal across you know many classes it has a disproportionate support, like many fascist parties do, from the professional middle class and upper middle classes. So these are educated classes. They have English language skills. They have um, access to the West, either by having you know visas and foreign passports and networks, social capital, cultural capital. And they're able to put their narrative, the PTI's narrative, forward in ways through those networks and, and through uh, those forms of capital in ways that the other Pakistani national parties have never been able to. To bring this to a close, what does the military want now from a new government? The most important thing that the military wants, quite aside from just wanting to be able to play its power politics with a civilian face in front, right? Because it recognizes that its popularity is at a historic low, which is why there's not going to be outright military rule. That's why it wants some form of a hybrid regime. Right. So it's very important for people to understand that, that the Pakistani military is not popular in Pakistan. There is an immense, immense anti-military sentiment and it has grown in the past 
year or so. And unfortunately, the PTI has been able to cash in on that in, in ways that the other parties have not, because the other parties, even though they were earlier seen as parties that stood up against the military, have lost that political cachet, have lost that political capital by being part of the interim government and seen by people as like siding with the military, right? Which they are. They are. Which they are. Exactly. Exactly. So it wants to remain in power and it wants that it wants the civilian face. Um, but the most important thing that it wants to undo is something that a, the um, that a democratic government put in place, which had been a demand of democratic groups and provincial rights groups uh, in Pakistan for decades, which was the 18th Amendment, which is about basically cutting up the pie, uh, equally treating Pakistan as a federation rather than a centralized state and sharing the national treasury, like dividing up the national treasury so that the military does not get the lion's share of resources. And that's been something that that has really stung the Pakistani military establishment for obvious reasons since we were talking about cash flow. And that's something that it is desperate to undo. So watch for that. Yes, and from for the sake of appearances and also to uh, make this country slightly functional because of how the economy has been has tanked, inflation has soared, Pakistan is dependent on the IMF aid as well. So the military at the moment does want some stability, right? But at, at the same time, it also is targeting, has targeted the PTI and its followers and they want that status quo to remain, unfortunately, because we must say that PTI's political workers and some of its leaders are behind bars and, and some of the political workers and our civilians being tried in the military court, which has happened. We have been we have seen activists and other civilians who have been tried in the military court. So the military wants that rep- this, you know, climate of rep- repression and fear to also continue. But uh, with a civilian face. Yes, yes with, with the new civilian face, you know, with the new civilians, which are going to be the face of the generals, just like it had Khan as the previous face of the military or the generals. That was Rabia Mahmood, a Pakistani journalist and human rights researcher. We've been hearing her and Sadia Tour, an associate professor of sociology at the College of Staten Island. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, A Bit of Broken Man, a new song from St. Vincent that has nothing to do with the previous content. Till next week, bye.